I dare say, if I were to ask you to name your top two to three favorite hymns, you could do that fairly easily. Some of you would have a hard time stopping at three because you would want to continue and say, oh, but there's this one and there's this one. It might be that if I asked you if you had a least favorite hymn, you could name that also. I had a friend remind me this week by sending me a picture during a worship service at the Upper Room in Nashville of a hymn that I'm not going to say I don't like because I like the hymn, but, but a hymn I'd be okay if I didn't sing again for two to three years. You see, in my former life, I was the Nashville District Superintendent, and practically speaking, what that meant was I went to different worship services every single Sunday, two or three, depending upon where the churches were located and what time the service was, which was just a wonderful way to spend a Sunday. But I began to notice there was like a 10-month span where every single worship service I attended sang Come thou fount of every blessing. I mean, at first I thought this is just an anomaly. Somehow it ties into the lectionary and we are singing this. But no, no. Every Sunday at one church, two churches, three churches, it was somewhere. Now, I didn't think I was so important that people would know that I was coming. No one was telling I was coming, but I was like, oh my goodness. So I started taking photos every time it was in a bulletin and sending and going, this is Antioch, this is Bellevue, this is Belmead, this is Belmont, this is West Antioch. It didn't matter where it was. They were singing that song. Not only did I take photos of it and send it to people, but I started noting whether or not the hymn had any introduction at all. In the second stanza, we sing, no, I'm reading, not singing. Here I raise my Ebenezer, here by thy, thy great help I come. And show of hands, honestly, how many of you know the scriptural reference to Ebenezer? I mean, you're Methodist, so those of you who've taken disciple, I see a handful, I see a pastor out there too, okay. But the majority are going, Ebenezer, you can tell by the context, right, that um, here by thy great help I've come, something significant happened at Ebenezer. Well, what happened when Samuel was a prophet in the days of Israel was that the Israelites triumphed over the Philistines, and the Philistines never bothered them again. So they set up a stone as a marker, as a reminder of God's faithfulness, and they called it, choir, Ebenezer. Y'all got it. You're supposed to be teaching them. This is participatory. So, and it made me think, particularly as I was looking at this morning's gospel reading, how we are a forgetful people. And we need reminders of God's goodness so that we will not be discouraged by what is going on in the world. Some of us, maybe even what's going on in the United Methodist Church. We need reminders that God is faithful and as God is at work. And the transfiguration functioned like that for those early disciples. First of all, for Matthew's hearers, Matthew's always stressing that we see a fulfillment of the Hebrew Bible in Jesus' ministry. So Matthew is saying, well, look, we have Jesus on the mountaintop, just like Moses 
went up to the mountaintop to receive the Ten Commandments, to have this close communion with God. Jesus takes three companions. Moses had taken three companions to the base of the mountain, not to the top. Jesus is transfigured. There's a bright light. Moses came down with his face shining. Elijah, after a period of deep discouragement, he knows that Jezebel is threatening to kill him. He goes to a cave, but he ends up on a mountaintop where, again, he encounters God. And Elijah also is the fulfillment of the prophets. So you have the fulfillment of the law and the prophets for Jesus. So the disciples are hearing that, but even more and this is why they want to build these tabernacles and stay there. They can't do it. It's because this is a season of deep discouragement in Jesus' ministry. Jesus had been baptized early on, and the heavens had parted, and there had been a voice that said, This is my dearly loved son. But that had been a long time ago. And according to Matthew's halftime report, Jesus' ministry is not going well. He's been accused of blasphemy and demon possession. John the baptizer, his cousin, the very one who baptized him, sent some followers to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we wait for someone else? This is chapter 11. Now, granted, John the Bapti Baptist, baptizer, is in jail. He knows that his days are numbered. He has every reason to be discouraged and want to know whether or not he has misplaced his hope in Jesus. But it still had to be a blow. I mean, this is family. Cousin John is starting to have his doubts. Jesus is being rejected by many of the people he came to serve and save. He stopped doing ministry in his hometown. And people who will ultimately be successful are plotting to kill him. The stakes are high. There had to be a feeling for his disciples that Jesus' ministry is going off the rails with the impending gloom and doom that is gathering. In short, Jesus is moving rapidly toward the cross, and it's precisely at this low point that he is transfigured. It's on this stretch through the valley of the shadow of death that the transfiguration invites us to remember Jesus' baptism that happened over here, and as people who live after Jesus was raised from the dead, to look forward and to anticipate his resurrection to come. And so it's a marker in the middle that says, do not be discouraged. Do not give up hope. The curtains part, the clouds part during the transfiguration, and we see Jesus as he truly is. And the voice again says, this is my son, my beloved child, the one with whom I am well pleased. In effect, what God is saying is, Jesus was my beloved son at his baptism. He will still be my beloved son in the teeth. He still is my beloved son in the teeth of human rejection. And he will be my beloved son in glory. This is who Jesus is. And so it's a story about seeing who Jesus is and holding on to that. It invites us not to be misled by the pain of the present and to remember that God is always at work, 
even in those dark moments and those dark places. So practically speaking, what does this mean for us? How do we hold on to hope? Well, we look back and we look at the historical record and we hear this story, but we can also look back across our own lives, those times when we know that we were close to God and that God was active and begin to tell ourselves, maybe, maybe if God was present and active and God redeemed this and I'm still breathing and I'm still standing, maybe God's going to lead me through this place as well. There's a great story about John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, who was prone to bouts of depression and doubts, who went to visit his brother one day, Charles, who's recovering from an illness. And John recorded in his journal on Saturday, March 4th, I found my brother at Oxford and with him, Peter Bowler. And I was convicted during our conversation of my great unbelief Immediately, it struck into my mind, and I'm quoting, leave off preaching. How can you preach to others when you have not faith yourself? I asked Bowler what he thought I, whether he thought I should leave it off or not. He answered, by no means. I asked, but what can I preach? He said, preach faith till you have it, and then because you have it, you will preach faith. Preach faith until you have it, and then because you have it, you will preach it. It makes me think of a story in Adam Hamilton's book, Making Love Last a Lifetime, which I think has been renamed Love to Stay. But he talks about when he was in graduate school, he got up and he looked at his wife one morning and he thought, or maybe it was at night. But anyway, he looked at her and he thought, I don't love you anymore. I'm not in love. And he heard God tell him to start doing loving things for his wife. And he thought, as a true graduate student, well, I have more important things to do. I need to write this paper. I need to research. I, and God was like, no, you're going to Walmart and you're buying some roses. And so that's what he did. Next morning, she's like, oh, what these? And it did not happen overnight. But as he began to do loving things, she began to do loving things. And today, they cannot imagine life without each other. So preach faith until you have faith, do loving things until feelings return, because feelings are not always the best barometer of what is going on in our lives, in our world. And then we hold on to this faith, this hope that God is faithful, and no matter what we are going through, the worst thing is not the last thing. That's what resurrection always reminds us. And I know we're just starting Lent and Easter's still several weeks away. But every Sunday we get to proclaim this news that God is faithful. As the psalmist wrote in verse 5 of Psalm 30, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. There's so much power and knowing what it is that we can hold on to when times are dark. So this is an invitation for you to consider throughout this week. What do I hold on to that gives me faith? My first appointment in Tennessee, I was in Erin in Houston County just down the road. And my very first year, there was a 
couple who was joyfully anticipating the birth of their first child. It was in the ninth month, made it through that first trimester, the second trimester, things were hopeful. And then the baby stopped moving and it was stillborn. And I went to the hospital as this new pastor, relatively speaking, first time as a solo pastor, I didn't have anybody to rely upon, to see the baby, to meet with the parents, and to pray. And as I was there, whether it was the Holy Spirit or training or whatever, I just automatically made the sign of the cross on the baby's forehead. And that mother talked about that for weeks and months later of what comfort that gave her to remember that that child had been claimed by Jesus before it was born. Didn't have all the answers, couldn't say why it happened, went on to have two other beautiful sons, not replacements, still grieves the loss of that first one, but just a reminder of God's faithfulness and that we are people who anticipate resurrection. So that's how we hold on to hope and faith with God. And since I have enough time, I want to, I think I do, um, you may disagree, but we hold on to hope for God. And this also allows us to see other people differently. When we see who Jesus is and remember that the worst thing is not the last thing, we can remember that we are all works in progress, friends. I mean, if you look at those disciples who were gathered with Jesus up on the mountaintop, their faith ebbed and flowed. They're asking questions all the time because they don't quite get it. But in the chapter before this, Peter triumphantly proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus says, yes, Peter, you are the rock on which I'm going to build my church. And then we know as the story progresses, Peter's going to go on and deny and betray Jesus three times. We ebb and flow in how faithful we are. Last week I shared Dr. Henry Cloud's observation that we judge ourselves by our intentions and we judge others by our behavior. And I think the story of the transfiguration invites us again to see ourselves and to see others as those who are not finished with whom God is still working. Presbyterian pastor Tom Long says this story can give us what he calls the gift of transfiguration discernment. Just as recognizing the true identity of Jesus required a parting of the curtain so the blessing of the baptismal past and the glory of the resurrection future could shimmer through the gloom of the present, the same is true when Christians seek to understand themselves and others. To see, people, to see who people really are requires more than a calculus of their present circumstances. We must see them in light of Baptism and resurrection, the beginning and the end. We are called to see people not only as they are, but as they were also at the dawn of God's creation and as they will be in the triumph of God's future. He goes on to share a story about a pastor of 30 some odd years who was always part of 
interviewing new pastors who were or candidates for ministry as they came forward. And he said, this fellow unfailingly over three decades would ask the candidate who was sitting in a room, there's a window, when somebody walked by, he was like, do you know that person? And they'd say, no, sir. And he'd say, well, describe that person to me theologically. And he said he invariably got one of two answers. He either was told that person is a sinner in need of the redemption of Jesus Christ, or he would be told whether they know it or not, that person is a child of God, loved and upheld by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Both answers are true, but he said he suspected that those candidates who answered with grace were the better pastors. I suspect they were also the better friends and the better colleagues and fellow church members. And so the invitation today is twofold. It is to go back and to remember God's faithfulness and to identify what story or stories in your life you can hold on to when you are discouraged that remind you that God has been active and trust that God is active and will be active. And the second invitation, when you find yourself wanting to beat up on yourself or to cast stones at someone else, is to take a deep breath and to remember that that person, whether it's the person looking back at you in the mirror or the person that you're looking out at, is a beloved child of God, made in the image of God, through whom God is working and will work. May we be faithful. Amen.